Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue of the magazine, just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. I'm delighted to say that here on The Profile today, we've got two amazing guests. The first is Moby, the chart-topping DJ. He's speaking to me in the first part of today's programme about his new book, Porcelain. It's a memoir of him in New York City from 1989 to 1999, the, the music career that he had and his Christian faith as well. And then in the second part of today's programme, we're going to be hearing from Fayez Mohammed about his story and his conversion away from Islam and towards Christianity. But first, let's hear the profile with Moby. Moby, it's great to be talking to you this afternoon. What made you want to write a 400-page book with a focus on just one decade of your career? Well, when I was growing up, I assumed that autobiography and memoirs were generally written by either disgraced public figures or very old politicians. Okay. And, but then, I guess about five, five or ten years ago, I started noticing this new crop of what I'll call sort of like contemporary, temporally decontextualized memoirs where you know something like patty smith's book mm-hmm. uh or even some of bob dylan's chronicles where they were almost less about the individual and more about a specific time so actually when i said decontextualized i sure. maybe i meant the opposite which is specifically contextualized where it's about a, a discrete time and place and so the character sort of revealed almost by context and and I still at that point didn't think that I had anything to write about and then I started telling some friends stories about what my life had been like in New York in the early 90s and late 80s and some friends said wow these are really interesting odd stories why don't you think of writing them down so that was kind of the genesis for how the book started yeah that's great and you know as you say it's very much set in that context of of new york some have even called it a sort of tribute to to the city in that way it's clearly a place you really loved oh yeah i mean when i was growing up because i was born in harlem and then i grew up poor white trash in connecticut and moved back to new york in the late 80s but when i was growing up in connecticut i obsessively loved everything about new york Right. You know, it was only yeah. about 40 minutes from where I lived, and it just seemed like this dark, magic cauldron <laughs> where <laughs> yeah. so much you know, art and music and literature and culture came out of this scary, magical place. And I assumed that you know, if I could, I would live in New York forever, but then about eight years ago... I realized that maybe I'd be happier, you know, living in a warm place like Los Angeles where I could go hiking every day in the winter. Mm, sure. The um, the book itself has a fair amount to say about your, your Christian faith, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But before we go there, I'd love to know, what was your first encounter with Christianity? Where did that whole thing come from? Well, I mean, I grew up in a very 
loose, culturally Christian environment. Um, I was baptized in a Presbyterian church, and my grandfather taught Sunday school, and my grandmother volunteered at the church. So I grew up in and around this church, but to me, Christianity was just a sort of ambiguous and amorphous cultural background. Yeah. Because this was, you know, suburban Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and so there was nothing evangelical about it, and really people never talked about their faith outside of church. You know, so it just wasn't... But I was also raised by hippies, and so my mom and her friends would be talking about Buddhism and Sufism and Taoism and Krishnamurti and meditation and tarot cards and throwing the I Ching. (laughs) So any discussions of faith that I was exposed to growing up had nothing to do with with Christianity. And, you know, I tried to read the Bible when I was growing up, and, you know, I started at the beginning, and really, like, a 13-year-old should not probably be pouring through Leviticus. (laughs) You know, when you're reading about, like, the building of the temple and spans and cubits, like, at 13, that that was not the most compelling stuff. (laughs) Then I kind of just sort of, I assumed that Jesus was a figure like Santa Claus or... I don't know, the Buddha or whoever, just like, mm-hmm. you know, nice nice people who might or might not have existed who you could gently venerate when it was expedient. Yeah. And so that was that was what I grew up with. And then I had like a sort of odd what I'll think of as a conversion moment when I was around twenty years old. Sure. And was this was this when you um, encountered sort of the the Bible started to encounter Jesus through the Gospels. Was was that what happened in that moment in your twenties? Yeah. So I was talking to a friend of mine who was a youth minister. This would have been about nineteen, maybe eighty five, eighty six. And so a friend of mine was a youth minister, and I was telling him in my sort of pantheistic, magnanimous way, I was saying how much I loved Jesus. You know, the same way that I loved pizza and (laughs) flowers yeah and and my friend said you know if you're going to have an opinion about jesus you might just want to read the new testament to know what you're actually talking about and i realized that i thought i was an expert on christ and christianity because i'd grown up with it and it was you know the dominant religion of our culture but i'd never actually read the new testament so one day I sat down and I went started reading the Gospels, and I was stunned to find that the character of Christ in the Gospels was so different from what I'd assumed it was going to be. You know, I thought that Christ and, you know, the teachings of Christ were basically going to be like the teachings of Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. You know, like someone saying, everything's okay, don't worry, you're doing great, you know. Yeah. Just try to be nice to squirrels occasionally, you know? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, and instead, I encountered a level of harshness that I hadn't been expecting, and a level of, I'm trying to think of the right way to describe it, but just like, yeah, like a level of severity that I hadn't been expecting. And, and then I read 
I think it's in Luke um, when it's after, I, I still don't fully know what these things are called. I think it's after the Beatitudes. Uh-huh. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm lowly and humble in spirit, and with me you'll find rest for your souls. Yeah. And something about that really clicked with me. And I, said, and I sort of thought, like, I was like, okay, I guess that means I'm a Christian now. Right. And, and from that, and I'm assuming you and maybe anyone reading this, will then relate to this next part where I had to realize what that meant. Like, I was like, okay, so I'm a Christian, so, so what do I do? Yeah. And what yeah. does that mean? Like, and so I started going to church. Um, I started teaching Bible study. I started going on Christian retreats. And sometimes that worked, and sometimes it made me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then time passed, and I found myself sort of deconstructing my faith and saying to what extent do my beliefs reflect ostensibly the thing in which I believe, and to what extent are they just an expression of me and my, you know, shortcomings and idiosyncrasies? Yeah, yeah sure. There's, um, there's this amazing moment in, in the book where I think you actually describe yourself as being, at this point, a bit of a judgmental Christian. Um, and you talk about preparing to lead a Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And you write about feeling smug because you're poor. At this point, you're actually living in an abandoned factory. And um, you talk about mm-hmm. sort of smugly going to this Bible study in a rich area of town, and you're sort of there to judge the children of the wealthy. But it's, it's an amazing story because you, you kind of realize partway through the, the kind of problem here on your own attitude. Would you would you like to sort of unpack the story? It's a it's a really interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I was making around two thousand dollars a year, and I was living in this abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood, and I had no running water and no bathroom, and I was teaching Bible study at the home of a very very wealthy business person, and I. I don't know if it's true for everyone, but it's really easy for me to lapse into smug judgmentalism. Mm, Yeah. Regardless of whether we're talking about politics or diet or, you know, spirituality, like it's, it's one of my big shortcomings is really finding it far too easy to lap, to fall into that smug judgmentalism. So I was getting ready to teach Bible study, and I was going to be smug and critical and judgmental of all these rich people. And then I sat down, getting ready to be smug and judgmental. <laughs> or actually, I already, I already was smug and judgmental. I was just getting <laughs> ready to visit it upon people. And the the mom who owned, who lived in this house had bought me some vegan cookies. Okay. And I remember I looked down and I thought, oh, I, I had this little tiny thought. And I was like, oh, that's God. Like, that's grace. Yeah. Like, and, you know, the wonderful quote of, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it made me think, you know, of some of the powerful stories in the New Testament where, you know, Jesus is talking about the tax collector going to church and standing in the back, or going to temple and standing in the back and being so humble and unwilling to approach the front of the temple. And Jesus saying, like, that's, that's your person of faith, you know, not the religious leader, not the smug, arrogant, judgmental person at the front of the church. You know, it's, it's the humble. And really, that's like a subtext, I think, of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. It's like 
the humble and the unexpected is what's generally representative of grace. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's interesting because around this kind of time, you are clearly incredibly passionate about your faith, your teaching Bible study. Um, you're very open in the book. You know, you talk about sleeping with your girlfriend and then immediately afterwards praying and asking for forgiveness, really determined <laughs> to sort of walk this particular path. Um, but but then as the book goes on, of course, things things start to change as well. Um, and it seems perhaps by the end of the book, your Christian faith has, has taken a bit of a backseat. I don't know if you'd say that's that's a fair assessment. Did, did faith take a backseat at, at some point in your life? It both did and didn't. You know, it, it all goes back to that original moment of like what I'll call my conversion. And in a way, nothing has changed from then except for the way in which I inhabit it and the way in which I approach it with sort of humility or, or arrogance, you know, or flexibility or rigidity. And I found that in my early Christian days, I was incredibly dogmatic and rigid. And then time passed, and I realized that my dogma and my rigidity said everything about me, you know, and my insecurities and my desire to impose rigidity and structure on things. But it really didn't express my understanding of God and of Jesus. When I was judging other people, when I was being smug, when I was being dogmatic, like, that had nothing to do with the nature of God. Mm. It had everything to do with me being just insecure and finding comfort in dogma and judgment. Yeah. And, and so then I went to another pendulum swing and took my faith into strip clubs and into alcoholism and into degeneracy and then... You know, the book I'm working on now, which is part two, it goes even further afield, you know, of, you know, just embracing hedonism and narcissism and entitlement. And luckily, the degeneracy, narcissism, hedonism, entitlement, luckily none of it worked out, you know. And But then the constant is this odd concept of grace. Mm. You know, and that's, I mean, there's so many ways in which faith, I guess, represents itself both in the world and in our culture. But to me, it's like the part that really always sticks with me is the con- is the idea of grace. Yeah. You know, that's such a key part of, of Christianity, that idea that God's grace is always there. And it, it doesn't matter sort of how, how far you fall. He's always there to, to, you know, with that forgiveness and with that love. You know, mm-hmm. have, have, would you say you've sort of experienced that in a particularly full sense, perhaps partly because of some of the things that you've done in the past you write about the book that where you felt like in hindsight perhaps you were going in the wrong direction and you've had to rely on that grace oh yeah i mean and the sometimes the grace is loud and interventionist sometimes it's very quiet but it always to me is wise and loving and not loving in a stern patronizing way but loving in the in like in the way that, like, a person might love an adopted puppy. You know, like, a gentle, yeah. messy love. Yeah. You know, yeah. not not a sort of, like, stern, go-before-the-throne, you know, rigid sort of way, but, like, you know, I mean, think of... If we assume that God is the architect of all things, 
is present when cells combine in the womb and is present when people have the messiest experiences of their lives. So, like, there's nothing formal about the divine. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's nothing... I mean, like, by definition, the divine cannot be formal if the divine is involved in the messiest biological aspects of existence. Right, okay, yeah. You know, you can't have... That's why it's this issue that I used to wrestle with quite a lot. It's like, is morals, you know, and mores. And a lot of, you know, that, that conflation almost of ethics and mores. And we've all grown up with the idea that certain things are displeasing to God, but the truth is they're just things that we're uncomfortable with, you know? And, I mean, clearly there are a lot of things that I presumptuously believe are displeasing to God, Mm -hmm. but they have more to do with cruelty and violence and despair, you know, and not necessarily with who someone chooses to kiss. Right. So, so you your so, so where would you say your sort of guidance for morality comes from then? If if there is a sort of a moral standard and and God is involved in some way, but how, but how are we to sort of figure that out? I mean, through scripture, you know, through the New Testament, but it's you know, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Mm. And also, I mean, <laughs> I'm not the first person to say this, but like, you know, we have God-given intellect and we had God gi- we have God-given sure. reason. Yeah, yeah. And so we're, we hopefully are capable of extrapolating. Sure. And, you know, simply looking at some of the lessons in the New Testament, some of the teachings in the New Testament, and applying them to, you know, modern life. Mm, yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. looking at the, the recurring themes of forgiveness kindness, humility, and letting, letting our morality be informed by those things. Mm, sure. you know, and also, I, I sort of, I, I remember reading a quote from Jane Goodall, who I think is the most perfect woman to have ever lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was saying, I'm paraphrasing, but she basically said, a fly, you know, is a creature of God that's the result of billions and billions of years of different processes. Who are you to to kill it? Right. You know, who yeah. are you to end the life of something that is, you know, that carries the mark of the divine in it, even if it's a fly? Yeah. And of course, I immediately forget that if I'm being bit by a mosquito. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it's it's... Like, and this is why I find some, like, modern Christian environmentalism to be very inspiring. Right. You know, yeah. going back to the idea of, almost etymologically, the root of the word dominion. And as far as I understand, dominion means to treat something in a godlike manner, you know, mm. not to dominate, not to crush, not to destroy, but to treat as if you're divine, you know, to treat as if you are god or a surrogate of God. Yeah. And and that that makes a lot of sense to look at everything as you know the worthy creation of God and our behavior should should be respectful of that. You know, sure. like so when we're dealing with whether it's 
animals or people or even ourselves. Um, you know, I went to see the Dalai Lama speak, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there's a meditation called Metta, M-E-T-T-A, and I guess in in Pali, it's the word for loving kindness. Okay. And so you extend loving kindness to all creatures, and but you also have to extend it to yourself in this meditation. And someone asked the Dalai Lama, they said, what, they said that they had a very hard time extending loving kindness to themselves, and the Dalai Lama didn't understand. Okay. And it, was, it seemed like a very a big distinction between like Western and Eastern yeah. thought, where like those of us in the West, like we're really good at treating ourselves worse than we would treat other people. Mm. And I think sometimes we have to remember, like just as everyone else and everything else is a creature of God, like so are you, so am I. And like, why wouldn't I extend the same kindness and respect to myself that I extend to the rest of God's creation? Yeah. I'm I'm pleased you brought that in because I wanted to ask you about your work with animal rights and of course you're very famously a, a vegan and I think you've in fact opened your own vegan restaurant in LA so congrats on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, where where does your Christian faith play into that? Because it's very interesting in the book, although at times it seems that your Christian faith may be taking a bit of a back seat and uh, and in also your relationship with alcohol is quite up and down. But the the importance of animal rights and and you being a vegan that seems pretty consistent. Yeah, I mean the only two constants in my life have been music and veganism. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been a vegan I've been a vegan for 29 years now. And and if I put it in a Christian context, um I mean there's <laughs> as we both know, you can use the Bible to justify a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, especially the Old Testament. Like mm-hmm. a lot of stuff happens in the Old Testament. Like, you, I mean, there's some gnarly stuff that you could justify based on biblical precedent. Of course, yeah, of course. Um, but you know, like I think of that scene when Saul, I forget who he's at war with, but he goes to war with this tribe and he only kills the men. And then, according to the Bible, God says, "Go back in and kill the women and the animals." Mm-hmm. You know, that's well, it's it's a hard, it's a difficult bit of one. biblical verse yes. to get past. Of yeah. yeah, and you know, um, but in terms of animals, so there's a lot of there are a lot of biblical quotes. You know, I think it's in Hosea. Oh, where is, I forget? It's been a while since I've tried to justify veganism based on scripture <laughs> okay but there's one that says like you know to, to to break the neck of an ox is as if to kill a man right yeah um and when i sometimes when i try and defend veganism to christians i'm like well have you read the first page of the bible sure when yeah, god yeah. proscribes a vegan diet yeah absolutely and yeah. it's super clear he says you know go forth and eat every plant that bears seed Mm-hmm. That's it, and it's only after the flood that God sort of says, "Okay, you're starving. Go eat meat." Yeah. And you could justify that, like with Jesus and the reconciliation, that we have returned to a sort of pre-fall state, or we mm-hmm. have the we have the ability to re- return to a state before the separation. 
yeah. you know, before before the expulsion from Eden. And the diet before the expulsion from Eden, according to Genesis, is 100% vegan. Right, sure. That's that's the sort of like the textual approach to it. But then there's just, again, the idea of I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yeah. And I feel like extending... I'd rather err on the side of extending compassion and extending kindness than withholding it. Yeah, makes sense. You, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that the, the, two, the two constants in your life, music and veganism. And on the music side of things, you know, I'd love to know about some of the ways your faith may or may not have influenced your music. I mean, you have written songs which have very Christian titles, for example, The Spirit Hovering Over the Water. Are there moments where your songs are like prayers or is there a spiritual element in, behind some of this or, or should people not think of oh, your music yeah. in that way? Very much so. But I guess it's that question that a lot of us have wrestled with, the idea of Christ and Christianity. We can almost call that like, uh, not to be glib, but it's, you know, the, the brand of Christianity. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and I'm very much a part of that, but I'm also very interested in like just the workings of the divine, the nature of the divine, and the nature of the human condition. And and I, I mean, in some circles this would be contentious, but I believe, for me, science points to God, mm-hmm. evolution mm-hmm. points to God, the history of the universe points to God. Like, I don't, yeah. I, I, if someone believes that the, that the Earth is 6,000 years old, like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I might not have much to talk about with them, but, like, when I think of the complexity of the divine, and even this is addressed scripturally, you know, in Job and elsewhere, you know, the complexity of the divine is not understandable by us in human form, which to an extent I believe is why we have Jesus. You know, right, it's a yeah. representation yeah. of the divine in a way that is more understandable to us. Yeah. But it's that question of, like, outside of this human condition, do these labels have the relevance and the meaning that they have in the human form? Mm-hmm. You know, like if we're talking about a 15 billion year old universe, like I, I assume that more will be revealed to us after we die as far as the the complexity of things. Mm. You, you mentioned the, the distinction between sort of Christianity as almost as a brand and perhaps where you're coming from. D- does that relate to how you'd uh, go to or not go to church, for example? Is, is church part of your life at the moment? It is in a weird way. Um, I mean, I'm a sober alcoholic, so I spend a lot of time <laughs> in church, but right. usually it's in the basement with other alcoholics. Sure, yeah. And, and in a way, it's very hard for me to generalize about the concept of Christianity because it means such wildly divergent things to so many people. It you does, know, like if you yeah, took a Russian Orthodox and a Southern Baptist snake handler, and (laughs) an Anglican, and an Ethiopian Anglican, and someone, you know, like, and put them in a room and ask them to agree on things, they'd probably have a huge fist fight. Of course. (laughs) So the Christianity that resonates the most with me is the Christianity that seems to reflect, you know, that concept of grace Mm. and forgiveness and humility and... Mm the Christians who are humbly taking care of the sick and the Christians who are humbly visiting people in prisons, you know, like not the Christians who are 
carrying guns and waving Confederate flags and yeah. not the Christians who are advocating war. And, you know, like yeah. it's, but the, and the quiet, humble people of faith, like I get so much inspiration from that. So when I experience that in a church, I, I find, I'm, you know, my, my spirit is nourished by it, but I also sometimes, I mean, going back to, you know, biblical precedent you know, as Jesus established, like sometimes grace comes from very unexpected places. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And you know, I mean, I, I mean, you could really say like Jesus is basically saying like grace is more likely to come from non-sanctioned places than from sanctioned places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, whether it's the centurion, the tax collector, you know, it it just keeps going, coming back to that, like that. You know, we will encounter grace in very in surprising, unexpected places. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a wonderful place to leave it. I'm so sorry we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was really. I, I rarely get a chance to talk about this, so this was this was really enjoyable. Thank you. The profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we sit down with a different Christian every week and we talk about their life story, their testimony, how they became a Christian. And I'm delighted to say that uh, today I'm joined in the studio by Fayaz Mohammed. He's here to talk about his life and his new book. Just before we get down to that main interview, I wanted to let you know you can request a free sample copy of the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine. It's the magazine that I help edit and that I write for. And this program, The Profile, is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you want that free copy, just head over to premierchristianity.com. Now today, as I just mentioned, I'm speaking to Fires Mohammed. He's the author of Letting Love Win. I'm delighted to say he joins me in the studio now. So welcome along. Thank you for having me. Uh, this book, Letting Love Win, I've I've already had a read of it, and it's a really gripping story and account of your testimony of how you went from being a Muslim to a Christian. I'd love to talk a bit of, of your story. Do you want to start just by telling us a bit about life growing up? You grew up in the north of England. Uh, your family had moved here from Pakistan, and you were brought up as a Muslim. And you, you say in the book you felt very different. Do you want to unpack that a bit? Yeah, uh from an early age, as far as I can remember, five years old, uh, I just felt the odd odd one out of the family mm. um, in terms of my intellect and in, in terms of my empathy with others and uh, in terms of my observation uh, that, that I was able to have at that age. Yeah, we were part of the first lot of immigration immigrants that came into the country and we were, uh, as a product of that and in terms of what we went through if, with the white people for example you know racism on the street was quite horrendous um, daily abuse from the from the whites um, where window smashing uh, paint on our door and the uh, human excrement sort of left uh, uh, in our areas and uh, th- this um, was a daily part of our mm. 
our life and yeah. this is what i grew up with yeah it really you know awful accounts that racism that you experienced yourself and and at home things weren't easy either with your own your own mother and and your family situation can you explain some of that yeah um at an early age um due to the um horrendous experience that we were having my father was afraid to leave his wife his kids alone in the house during the night because to earn extra income he worked during the night so what he did was he got a distant a relative um, to come and stay at the house and he, he got him the job at his mill during the day so he was at the house during the night and uh, it was this that then started my mum had an affair with this man and I was exposed to that at an early age probably about six, six or seven you know I, I watched my mum having sex with this man at an, at an early age I did not understand the act itself but I knew it was wrong I can remember clenching my little you know, fists uh, with anger uh, towards my mum and this man uh, and uh, yeah it was hard mm. it was tough you talk as well about this being an abusive environment. Why is that the case? My mum hated having daughters. She just literally hated having daughters. And the first child that she ever had was a daughter in Pakistan. Uh, subse- subsequently, um, she was also ill-treated and died at the age of two years old. My mum came in to England, uh, obviously, you know, with my father, and she went on to having two more daughters. One of them was, you know, mentally handicapped. And uh, the abuse started with her as well. Uh, at first, it was just shouts. You know, uh, I think she was, my sister must have seen about, the abuse must have started about when she was about four. At first, it was shouts, and um, she used to grab, uh, you know, from the throat. Um wasn't anything... In a major, but that's where it started from. Um, when we moved into another town, uh, away from the racist abuse, into a town that had a, a large Muslim community, the abuse then escalated. As my sister got older, she was much more difficult to cope with in terms of you know wetting herself and things like that. And my other sister, who was older than older than her, what then took up, on, took up on the role of being a mother to her because mm. my mum refused to have anything to do with her. She kept her in the cellar on a wooden chair and uh, I know that if I had to sit on a wooden chair all day, you know, it would hurt me. And uh, you had this child who was handicapped and every human being longs for that human interaction Mm -hmm. and the love and the hugs and uh, my sister didn't have any of that she was kept in the cellar and uh, I I know her frustrations hearing us upstairs and she was alone downstairs and I think this aggravated her Mm. mental state Uh, my mum routinely used to go down and uh, beat her so you had blood from her nose her head Mm. her, um, her mouth and uh, I remember my mum used to come up exhausted uh, after handing out the beatings and she used to tell my sister to go downstairs 
and clean up the mess. And I, I had to go through that uh, every, single every single day. As I says, I was the odd one out, and I was the closest to my sister. I loved her, I doted on her, and I slept in the same, you know, so bed, you know, you know with her. She's my you know, baby sister. I mm. used to hug her, kiss her. I, I really, I loved her a lot. Mm. And, and uh, having to go through that abuse wasn't easy for me. Mm. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it must have led to a lot of anger in you at seeing this, this sort of injustice within your own, your own home. Um, a very religious home, though. You were, you were brought up to, to read the Quran. That was a huge part of your life growing up. And um, when you got to, into your teenage years, though, you, um, I guess, became frustrated with reading a book you didn't understand. You were reading it in the original Arabic. And you had a lot of anger towards Islam, didn't you? Can you explain what happened? Yes, I did. Um, we are taught to fear this book. Uh, and uh, we are brought up to have this absolute fear of this book. And we must treat it with respect. And mm. we we have to keep it in a higher place. If it's not in a higher place, it must be kept in, kept in a, a drawer. You're not allowed to turn your back on it. Uh, before you even touch it, you have to go through a ritual cleansing of yourself, which is called you know, wuzu, where you have to wash your wash your ears, inside of your nose, everything uh, be- before you even touch it. I just could not find the connection of God that I that longed for, that mm. relationship with God. I could not find that in Islam. Um, we are taught that we are slaves to God, and mm. we must work our way to win his approval mm. and uh, reading the the Quran we are taught Arabic but we're not taught to understand what we are reading as I got older I was really frustrated with it and I just had enough and uh, this book that we are feared uh, I just threw it on the floor and kicked it and spat on it and uh, I can remember my brother's faces they were absolutely terrified mm. you know they were terrified that God would punish us and um, I just hungered for that relationship I wanted to know God I wanted to know who this person was and I just could not find it in mm-hmm. Islam not because I saw abuse within the, my home it, it's even in the community itself I did not see the presence of inner God mm. you know and I and I wondered if my community loved God in so in much then why is it that the hearts are mm. the same and they just do the upward rituals to please you know Allah mm. why is it that the yeah. character is still the same how did you go from being in this you know fairly devout muslim household to sitting here now as a as a christian what was the turning point where you changed faith completely i i remember watching a movie a all cast hollywood cast movie a two part uh, actually a drama of Jesus of Nazareth on TV. And um, I was probably about 12, I'm not... Uh, and uh, my brothers and I sat down to watch his film. And uh, something stirred me up, you know. When I saw, I mean, uh, the actor himself, you know, Robert you know, Powell has got these piercing eyes anyway. Mm. When I saw him portray G- Jesus and I saw his eyes and I thought... You know, something stirred me up in the way he portrayed Jesus. You know, Jesus who was calm, was collective, was peaceful, was caring, was compassionate, was all, you know, forgiving. Mm. And uh, 
And the scenes that really attracted me to him were, for example, when this woman was brought to him to be stoned for adultery. And in my community, women uh, in that situation are stoned. Right. And uh, when I s- saw Jesus turn around and say, he who is without sin cast the first stone calmly, mm. that really struck a chord. You know, mm. It just blew me away. And what even struck me further that he gently went over to the you know woman and he says where are your accusers mm-hmm. and uh, he, he says go and sin no more he was gentle with her and um and the way he was able to drive a demon out of a, a boy and heal the lame and raise the dead and and yet he hung on the cross saying father forgive them for they do not know mm-hmm. you know what they do I didn't understand that what the crucifixion you know meant, but I understood that Jesus was perfect, and that really, really affected me deeply. And mm. I, I remember I said, I want to be like Jesus. Right. Yeah. 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 And to answer your your questions later on in my years, uh, in my teen, I just prayed to Allah. I says, Allah, if Islam is the true path, mm-hmm. then show me. Mm-hmm. If it's not, then you need to show me what is. And um, then I ended up in a, a Salvation Army hostel, and uh, that was the first time I came across Christians. Mm. Uh, because in our community, Christianity is white man's religion. You mm. got women with their short skirts and they sleep around, men out drinking and doing all sorts. This is what we understood Christianity to right. be. And when I came across Christians, it just blew me away. I could not believe what I was seen mm. i saw compassion i saw the love i saw forgiveness and the striking thing that i saw in christians was this that christians controlled their tongues that i never heard them swear or curse or talk about other people in a horrible way it was always love love and compassion and yet in my own community tongues are loose you got mm. swearing you got cursing as if it was a normal thing to do mm. you know and yet when i saw christians i immediately had a flashback at the movie about Jesus. I thought, my goodness, these people are actually acting out what Jesus did and taught. Mm. And I and I just knew at that time that I had hit the right note. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you know, the the book obviously goes into to great detail about your whole journey and but you know, perhaps just to pick out a couple of themes from it and try and draw some of this together your journey of becoming a christian it wasn't necessarily straightforward or easy and we've already mentioned some of your difficult family background and i wondered if you wanted to expand a bit on those two things on on how there was a real journey in becoming a christian and how that related to your family and perhaps where you are now with that with that you know difficult family situation in in your past what what does the future look like yes it was a a difficult process that i went through and uh and the reason for that is I had Jesus in my head, uh, but I didn't have him in my heart. Right. Um, I would. Uh, I, I needed to have that born again mm. experience that Jesus speaks about. You know, you must be born again, born again of the Spirit. So that process I went through, uh, and I had a lot of hate towards my mum. Mm. A lot of hate. Uh, all I wanted to do is kill her. You know, th- that was th- that was my whole agenda you know mm. the emotion the hate is to kill her and um so it, it was a, a roller coaster ride until i actually was in a situation i was in a pit and i just cried out to jesus i said jesus i messed up please come into my life i want to know you personally i want to know you i want to know you 
And it was that moment on that day I went to bed and I woke up and I was a complete different person. Mm-hmm. And when I opened up the Bible, it was like having a new toy. It was alive. It wasn't a book, uh, a religious book. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely amazed. You know, the, the words you know, jumped out at me and they were real. They were as if I was in the story. And uh, things challenged me as well. You know, that my hatred towards my mum, for example. Mm. What it says in the scriptures, God says, if you do not forgive, I will not forgive you. Yeah. Knowing Christ and his love and that relationship I have you know, with him enabled me then to love my mum and not hate her and forgive her. Wow. And as I said to people before, it's easy to say that in words. I would mm. love to go home and say to my mum, mum, I forgive you, I mm. want to hug you. And uh, and my mum, sort of knowing that her son that hated her is now reaching out to her, mm. I think it would touch her. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been able to do that? No, I haven't. I've tried, but uh, it hasn't happened. You know, it's so difficult, you know, hearing about your, your early childhood and, you know, the abuse that went on and everything. T- to move on and have any kind of healing from that must be incredibly difficult. Not if you are with Christ, it isn't. Um, I've said many times before, no amount of counselling on this planet would have taken that hate away. No amount. No anger. It wouldn't have taken that anger away as well. It, it was only knowing Christ, the power of God in you, that enables you to overcome that hate. Mm. It's important at this climate at the, at the moment that of a paramount importance that the church, that individual believers go out and make friends with my community in order Mm. to show them Christ Mm. as I saw Christ when I first came across Christians Mm. and it's equally important for me uh, as you know I went and spoke at the EDL protest after the killing of Lee in Rigby I went there and I openly challenged their behavior you know towards my community Mm. and I was received uh, you know with open arms they actually shook my hand and appreciated my honesty. However, yes, there are elements within the crowd who are racist, who are far right. Mm. And equally so, I have also been speaking at uh, a group called you know, Pegida that started off in Germany, again, to encourage the crowd. Yes, I do, underst- uh, yes, I do understand their concerns about the I- Islamic ideology, mm-hmm but we must respond in peace and not hate. Mm. Uh, regarding the grooming gangs, you know, uh, the white community have got a lot of anger uh, mm. of what's happened. Men from my community that have groomed white girls and exploited them, etc. I can understand their anger because if a group of white men did the same to girls from my community, my community will, sure. would yeah. also be angry yeah. and hold protests as well. Mm. So it's all about engaging with them and trying to say, hey, I understand mm. the anger, but let's respond in a peaceful way mm. and not hate. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's important to draw a distinction in, in your own story of how you know you did suffer this awful you know, abuse or your, your sister did from your, from your mother. Um, and it was also a religious household, but we perhaps shouldn't conflate the two necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking specifically at the religion, the religious aspect of your upbringing in terms of Islam and your faith now in Jesus, 
what are the kind of differences you observe between the, the belief system and what that led to when you were a Muslim and the belief system you have now? What's, what's the difference that it makes? The difference is that I don't have to work my way to earn approval from God. God sees my heart. Mm. And I have a loving relationship with him. You know, it's not a God that's far away up in the sky mm. and doesn't sort of listen to you. In Islam, it's a one-way relationship uh, and it's humans trying to please God. In Christ, there is freedom. There is, mm. you know, so, you know, liberty. There's a, this two-way relationship, and uh, freedom and uh, you know, you know, liberty. It doesn't mean that I can do whatever I want because mm. I'm a Christian. I can go out and do um, horrible things. Uh, you know, when you know Christ, mm. the 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 core character of God is love. Mm. When you, you when you are connected with that love. The rest flows out automatically, yeah. which is compassion, which is love and, uh, and forgiveness. Mm. And can I just say Rob, that um, I don't want to be sounding that I am against my people, mm. you know, Muslims, because all too often I hear a lot of hate towards mm. my community. Um, people say that Islam ought to be banned, you know, the Quran ought to be banned. And I stand against that because mm. <clears throat> our Muslims have the right to practice Islam mm. under Article 18 and I will defend anyone's right to convert to Islam and yeah. practice it as I would defend the rights of people that want to leave Islam. Mm. So just finally then, for, for someone who's listening to this and you know they're a Christian, maybe they don't have any Muslim friends and maybe actually if they're honest they're a little bit scared of making a Muslim friend, perhaps a little bit scared of, of Islam. What's your message to those Christians who don't currently have any contact with Muslims, but they believe in the gospel, they want to share their faith? What's your message to them? Love is a very strong emotion. My community loves people to go up to them and say, we care about you. And that's a, most, you know, a powerful thing that any Christian can do. Mm. We don't have to go and preach to them. You don't have to have a, a PhD on how to love. Just go out and love them. And and if we do that, it is only through our love and our compassion and personal friendships that my community will see Christ in you. That's wonderful. Fires Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, there you go. That was my interview with Fayaz Mohammed. He is the author of Letting Love Win. That's his biography, his story. Really remarkable book. Do encourage you to get hold of it when it releases. It's going to be published by Authentic very soon. It's called Letting Love Win by Fayaz Mohammed. And uh, great as well to hear from Moby, the chart-topping DJ, about some of his Christian faith and his thoughts. If you'd like to read that interview in full, you can actually get a hold of the latest copy of Premier Christianity magazine it's our april issue it's out now the cover story is about fake news and if you go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample you can request a free sample copy of that issue of the magazine so you can read about moby and read some of the other great content we've got this month well that's sadly all we've got time for today here on the profile on premier christian radio i'm sam hales and it's been wonderful to be with you time to pass over now to dave rose for the very best of premier this week in premier playback